0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. 1 Kings 19 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. and ate and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard, heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left... And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king of Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king of Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Maloha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, throughout religious history and spiritual history, there's a tradition that appears among different cultures and places over the span of thousands of years, and it's the search for what is known as thin places. Now, thin places are the locations where people believe that the distance between heaven and earth come like uncommonly close, um, where the veil between the divine and the ordinary gets so thin that they touch. And examples of these places are St. Brigid's Kildare, St. Peter's at the Vatican, Uh, The Celtic Monastery of Iona, the Wailing Wall of Israel, those sort of places. And throughout time, men and women have made these long religious pilgrimages, traveling to these places in order to, to experience like a transforming touch of the divine in their life in order to get answers to life's biggest questions, in order to make sense of what doesn't seem to make sense in their lives, in order really to experience these moments of spiritual breakthrough. I spoke at a retreat center, a monastery, a number of years ago. And it was one of those, like, away, out of the city, very like sacred feeling sort of monasteries. And, and it was kind of a place that, if I could be honest, I assumed would be a thin place. And I remember that there was this time, intentional time in the day that was given to, to silence where no one there spoke. It was like for an hour or two. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm at a monastery, right? And so surely God is going to speak to me. This is a sacred place and it's going to be a very sacred moment. And so I remember sitting down and sort of posturing myself, and a number of minutes go by, and then more time goes by, and so I'm thinking to myself, "Am I doing this wrong? Uh, did I like miss the instructions about like a special Gregorian chant, like ah?" Nothing, just silence, just me sitting there. And I asked myself, why, why, do I, why do I not feel different right now? See, sometimes the, the, the spiritual breakthrough doesn't come, at least not like we expected it. A travel writer for the New York Times wrote an, an article about these thin places a, a few years back. And what I really appreciated about this article was how honest he was about the potential for disappointment. When people get to these places, people travel from across the world to essentially, for some of them, for many of them, to find nothing. And he says, travel to thin places does not necessarily lead to anything as grandiose as spiritual breakthrough, whatever that means. But it does, listen, but it does disorient. It confuses We lose our bearings, and then we find new ones. Either way, we are jolted out of the old ways of seeing the world. This is where we meet Elijah. Here in 1 Kings 19, he's traveling to what he believed would be a a, a thin place, a place where he could experience the transforming touch of God on the very mountain of God, But instead, he finds himself in this disorienting space in the wilderness, losing his bearings and then finding new ones. Now, it's worth noting something here. Our text begins with Elijah moving in one direction, and then it concludes with him coming back to the same place. And it's that pivot point in the middle that I really want us to focus on. We we meet Elijah determined to give up. He's running from the life that he has been given, but then at a certain point he is sort of redirected and then sent back a very changed person with a renewed purpose and a renewed vision for life just as it is. Not a separate life, not a different life for his already life, but with fresh eyes and fresh calling. I I believe the wilderness had a vital part to play in the process of, of his Formation of that redirection in his in his life. And I believe the wilderness has a a unique place for us as well. And some of us may find ourselves in a very similar place today, finding ourselves in what feels like a wilderness moment, discouraged by what life feels like right now. For many of us, it's hard to imagine what life is going to look like next, what life's gonna look like next week or next month or the rest of this year. Perhaps you've given uh, over yourself over to fear. Perhaps you've given yourself over to disappointment or frustration or the sense of aloneness in this season. What the scriptures show us is that God meets us in those very disorienting wilderness moments. He is present with us. But what we find here in this passage in a really unique way is the reality that god does not meet us on our own terms and he does not meet us how we expect him to he meets us in our difficulty he meets us in our need he meets us in our brokenheartedness he even meets us in our like sinful rebellion he meets us when we need it where we need it and with what we need most but he does not meet us on our own terms and when he draws near on his terms, he does so to strengthen us, to speak to us, and to send us. First, God strengthens. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever allowed someone or something to cloud your vision for life and to consume you? To just like totally grip you? Have you ever let a bad situation in your life convince you that there is absolutely nothing else good happening in your life? I know I have. And clearly, Elijah has as well. it's very interesting. In the very previous chapter, chapter 18, we're told that the hand of God was on Elijah. That is a unique statement. That can't be said about everyone. The hand of God was on Elijah and we see God working powerfully through his life. We see uh, in, the, in the previous chapters that um, God worked miraculously through Elijah to confound the priests of Baal and to call down fire on the sacrifice at this great like, showdown of the gods as Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, wins this battle against the priests of Baal. It's a very like powerful scene. Even before that, we read that Elijah uh, prayed and called down rain in a long, long season of drought for Israel. And yet, almost immediately, he falls into this pit of self-loathing. He says, I've had enough, he tells the Lord. My life is over. It's done. Put a fork in it. Now, Don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not trying to minimize his situation, and I would never try to minimize the situations that we find ourselves in. For Elijah, this was a very trying time, to, to, to put it lightly. Jezebel was a fierce individual, and she was making some extremely fierce threats. This is obviously not like a mild altercation. She wants blood. She wants Elijah's life. But regardless of the degree of the threat, the point is this, that he allowed her or our circumstance, fill in the blank, to eclipse his view of God. That's what happens when things eclipse our view. Something this big can eclipse something this big the closer it gets to our face, the closer it gets to our And this is what Elijah is doing in this moment, and this is what we often do in our trying moments. This was a God who had proved himself powerful in Elijah's life, and yet at this point in Elijah's mind, his best option is just to give up. He's done. Look at me in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. At times, believers can experience a feeling toward God that I actually believe is worse than unbelief. I hear people say all the time, you know, I couldn't imagine not believing in God. I couldn't imagine living without faith. It would be so hard to live life without knowing that there's a God behind all of this. That may be true for you. But I think what is sometimes more painful is the belief that there is a God, but that he doesn't really like us that much. That there is a God behind all this, and yet here's all my mess, and I can't make sense of it. Sometimes, like for Elijah, it's actually more painful to know there is a God. There's this very disturbing scene in the movie Fight Club where Brad Pitt's character, Tyler, is teaching Edward Norton's character, whatever the heck his name is a lesson about life by inflicting this horrible chemical burn on his hand. And it's like, again, it's a traumatizing scene. And Tyler's across the table holding onto his hand and he's jolting back and forth, trying to get free, trying to find some way to ease the pain of this chemical burn on his hands. And he says these very haunting words to him. He says, our fathers were our models of God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? Listen to me. You have to consider the possibility that God doesn't like you. He never wanted you. In all probability, He hates you. We are God's unwanted children. So be it. See, because Elijah knows he can't escape the reality of God and he can't escape the pain that is caused. By knowing that, life has begun to to lose its meaning. Now, isn't God's response to him very interesting? It's almost comical. Elijah says, there's no getting out of this one. There's no hope for me. There is absolutely no way for me to move forward. And then God sends an angel... Are you ready for it? With baked goods. How's that? There's this fierce queen sending an army to kill me, God. I don't know if you see what's going on in my life right now. You better do something extraordinary. And then he awakens to like the ancient version of an easy-bake oven. I can't help but see the irony And it's this, that Elijah asks God to take radical measures to end his life. And God takes simple measures to sustain it. The very thing that Elijah needed in that moment was not for God to take his life, or anything extraordinary for that matter. He needed to eat, And drink and rest for the journey ahead of him. He needed God to supply him with strength to simply continue, to persevere. But how does he do that? Well, what we see here is it's through a message from God to arise. I find that very unique a message through a messenger to arise, our application would be a resurrection message, bread, and water. We have to be willing to see God not just in the extraordinary, but also in the ordinary. Word, bread, water. We can't be so consumed by expecting a spiritual breakthrough that we miss the living presence of God faithfully meeting us where we are in the simple, in the simple times. Now you realize that this is exactly what we are doing when we gather as the church, emphasis on when, We gather as the church together. We come to receive what is known as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. What are those? It's the scriptures being read and preached. And it's the sacraments, the Lord's table, the bread, and baptism, the water. Word, bread, water. Now, I've talked to so many people, myself included, that now in this season right now, realize how much we have taken for granted the simple gifts of the ordinary means of grace. These gifts that God has given us week after week after week, word, bread, and water, and now in its absence as we are Experiencing this sort of social isolation, our hearts are longing to gather with God's people again to experience those ordinary means of grace. Now, in the meantime, because we are not able to gather, not like before, don't forget that God meets Elijah alone in a cave. Which means this, that seasons of social distance can be times of profound spiritual connection. This season right now, while you may be lacking, and we are lacking, we're lacking the gathering, we're lacking some of the experiences that we have as a church, but these can also be times of profound spiritual connection. God strengthens. Secondly, God speaks. Look at me in verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength Uh, of the food, went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so Elijah travels through the wilderness toward a very specific mountain. Now, the underlying idea here is that Elijah believes that he needs to go somewhere specific to hear from God. He's got to go somewhere unique to have a unique experience Of God, and what's important about this location is that Horeb is 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 another name for another for uh, it's another name for a mountain that we read of elsewhere in scriptures called Mount Sinai. Where Elijah is traveling is the very place that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. This has some rich history in this location. And so what we can gather from this story is that Elijah is in such a desperate place in his life that he feels that the only way that he's going to make it out of this predicament is that if he meets God on the very mountain that Moses met with God. That's where I need to go, he says. Where where Moses witnessed the sheer power and glory of God, fire and smoke and the mountain is trembling Surely, if he could catch a glimpse of what Moses saw those, those many years ago, then he would be able to, too, come off that mountain and, with confidence in the power of God and face the difficulty that he needed to face in his life. Surely, if I see and experience what Moses experienced, then I would have the strength and power I needed to face my giants. Now, what the commentaries point out is that what should have taken a, a, a couple weeks ended up turning into a 40-day ordeal. And we don't know exactly why, but it's a 40-day journey. And I think that that is a specific number for us. Because what's interesting is that the reason that Israel wandered in the wilderness, the very same wilderness, by the way, for 40 years, was, that, was so that an, an entire unbelieving generation would die off in the wilderness before God's people came into the promised land. And so it seems that like, you know, that 40-year wandering of God's people, God intended for a portion of Elijah to die during his journey in the wilderness. But this time, not an unbelieving generation, but rather an unbelieving expectation. This is my summation here. It's not Elijah that needs to die. It's his expectations that need to die. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, how is that? Could you imagine traveling 40 days on foot to meet with God only to be greeted with these words, What are you doing here? Why are you here? Verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I and I only. Those are dangerous words. See, I think one of the surest ways to increase our despair and to increase our overwhelm in our lives is to think that we are the only ones. I'm the only one that suffers like this. I'm the only one that knows what it's like. I'm the only one that seems to be remaining faithful in this moment. I'm the only one that, that's experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. I'm the only one that knows how God is, is supposed to be at work in this situation. I'm the only one that knows how God is supposed to be at work in this world. I'm the only one, fill in the blank. I love it. God in just a moment is gonna respond to that statement and be like, uh, actually I've got like 7,000. So no, you're not alone. So God says, all right, come here, I want to show you something. Verse 11 and 12, And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, A fire. The Lord was not in the fire. All the things he was expecting. This is Sinai. These are the kind of things that God does here. Mountain demolishing wind blows through a, a rumbling earthquake, shakes the ground, the fierce sight of fire. That's what I'm talking about, God. Yet in this very ironic clarifications, the scriptures say God was not in any of it. There will always be things that boast of being extraordinary for the kingdom. But we cannot assume that God is always in it. Things may appear extraordinary. But the assumption cannot be that God is in it. Elijah wanted earth, wind, and fire. Do you remember 21st night of September. Sorry, that that song's in my head. Anyways, Elijah expected earth, wind, and fire, but instead, what does he get? God's voice. God's voice, which turns out to be the ultimate revelation of God. The revelation of God that we can always count on that we can always assume God is at work within. Look at with me, verses 12 and 13. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Or some translations read, a thin silence. And behold, there came a voice to him. See, it turns out that Elijah, what Elijah needed most that day was not to see a miracle What he needed most was to hear the word of God. And I believe that is true for us as well. And let me explain why I think that. I believe that the scriptures show us time and time again that faith does not come by seeing, but according to Romans chapter 10, so faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, not by seeing but by hearing, and hearing specifically the word of Christ. This is where we discover the power of God that defeats our enemies, the word of Christ, the gracious whisper of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, these are all pictures of God's power displayed through judgment. Elijah doesn't just want to see the sheer power of God he wants to see the powerful judgment of God. He, needs, he thinks he needs to be reminded that God can still throw down if he needs to. But what he's ultimately forgotten is this, that if God starts throwing down, then no one is safe. Because we all deserve to go down if God starts throwing down. No one is worthy to escape the whirlwind. You see, hundreds of years later, God would come down in earthquake and wind and fire, but it wouldn't be directed at his enemies. It would be directed at his very own son, Jesus Christ, the word of God that took on flesh. And the gospel writers tell us about another mountain where the ground shook and the rocks broke open, but this time it wasn't Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. It was a mountain called Golgotha. And the judgment for sin that we all deserved to receive came down on Jesus in order to deliver us from our true enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And there's an interesting connection here where we find ourselves in the story between Moses, Elijah, and then you and me. Exodus tells us that Moses was hidden in the rock as God passed by in power. First Kings tells us that Elijah was hidden in the rock as God passed by in power. And in the same sense, we are placed in the rock, Jesus Christ, as God passes by in power. And now the cloak that we cover ourselves with as we stand before this powerful God are the robes of Jesus' Righteousness. The only way for sinful men and women like you and me to stand in the presence of a holy God like this is by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, and being found hidden in him by faith, safe in Christ. The point is this. Jesus got the earthquake and the wind and the fire so that you and I could get the gentle whisper of the good news of redemption, so that you and I could receive the whisper of God's grace. And this is where this connection is so important for us to remember, especially in a season like this, and it's that we we no longer need to, to go and search for extraordinary signs that God cares about us and that he's powerful and that he's present in our really difficult moments. We don't need to be out there searching for signs. He has already proven it to us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we don't need to travel the world to find these thin places that where God will reveal himself to us. He has already given us his ultimate revelation in his word, his son, Jesus Christ, and he has continued to speak to us through the holy scriptures, and now he has given us his Holy Spirit, the very whisper of God's love and his provision and his affirmation and his care for us, who now goes with us wherever we go. He has proven himself through his son and the sending of his Holy Spirit. (sighs) Lastly, God sends. Now, what's interesting to me is that although God is drawing Elijah out of his despair, he's going to bring him out of this kind of moment, he does not do it by coddling him. Or by affirming his rants. He doesn't give Elijah what he wants. But instead, he does it by telling him truth. And then redirecting him. And I think that that's ultimately what we need most. When we find ourselves in our wilderness moments as well. For God to speak his truth to us. And to redirect our lives. And so God drew him out with three timeless truths briefly the first he reminds Elijah that I have given your life purpose your life has purpose verses 15 through 16 the Lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive anoint Haziel king of Syria and Jehu you shall anoint king over Israel go back I've got some things for you to do And so that's very interesting that our moments of being out of commission are actually God's moments of recommissioning. When we think we're down for the count, when we think we're out of the game, God is now recommissioning us and sending us back in. Elijah essentially says, it's over. And God says, no, I have the last word. It's over when I say it's over. Go back. There's still many days ahead of you. Your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. And so in a season of social distancing, God is preparing your hands for future anointing. Elijah is alone right now, but he says those hands that aren't touching anyone right now and are very distant from everyone right now have purpose for anointing and blessing the lives of people around you. The second thing is that my plan is bigger than you. God reminds him that his plan is bigger than him. Verse 16, And Elisha you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Go train your replacement. Now those can be really difficult words, but it's a beautiful reminder that when our time is said and done, God's work continues. Sometimes the kindest thing that God can remind you of is that it's not all about you. Friend, it's not all about you. His plan for your life is bigger than your life. His plan for you is bigger than you. It involves a a legacy of faith. That that is what we are investing in in this moment right now, the legacy of trust that we're going to pass on to others. It feels like we're in a holding pattern right now. God is not in a holding pattern. He is preparing you to invest in the lives of others and to leave a lasting legacy that glorifies God for many generations to come. He is not done in your life. And third and finally, you are not alone. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. When you feel alone, what you need to remember is that you've been brought into a lineage of faith. And it's a lineage of faith that transcends space and time. You may look around at your life right now and your world feels very small. Moments of isolation and being shut up in our homes. It makes our world feel very, very small. But what we need to remember is that God's work in the world has not ceased God's work in the world has not slowed down. God is not hindered by this moment. He is at work in the lives of many. And what I believe in this moment, in this season, is that he is at work to bring more men and more women and more children into this family in a season where it seems least likely to happen. Where our deepest fears about what is next for the church, how's the church gonna survive, God, is enjoying the endless possibilities of his power in a moment like this. God is at work in the world. And so what you and I need to be reminded of in this season is this. He has given our life's purpose. His plan for us is bigger than us. And we are not alone.